Welcome to the faith. What <laughs> just happened? I start talking and hitting my ring on the desk. <laughs> oh! Right. Y'all, this is his first time. Y'all go get some. <laughs> it's only episode 375. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Faith Element Podcast for the October 16, 2022 session, focusing on Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, Approaching God. I'm David Cassidy. I'm Nikki Hardiman. I'm Daniel Glaze. And I'm Bert Montgomery. When I was growing up, you know, I read lots of different books, and I remember really enjoying this series called Ramona the Pest. I don't know if y'all <laughs> read those yeah. or not, yeah. <laughs> or read them to your kids, but Great fun, great fun. I'm not sure she was really a pest, but um, but I'm curious if there's any pestering in your background, whether it was pestering done to you or something you pestered others about. <laughs> well, okay, I, I I figured out as a child that um, I was a bit of a mama's boy, and whereas if I pestered my dad and pestered my dad and pestered my dad. I still probably would not get what I wanted. My sister, however, could, but I couldn't. But if I went to my mom, even if she was dead set against me at that moment, if I just kept going back and kept going back, I could win her over. Yeah. So I could be a bit of a pest to get what I wanted as a kid. I figured out which parent it worked with. <laughs> nice. Nice. So, yeah, I, um, I don't, I don't know if I was a pesterer all the time, one who pesters, but there was this one time um, I lived in a small town at the time. There were like three stoplights, which I know for some of you, that's a big town. But for us, it was really small because I moved from Atlanta to this little town. And so there was a furniture store downtown and they always changed the front display. And I always liked to see it. And one day we rode past and they had put this it was a white upholstered bench with little curvy handles on the side. I called it a Victorian fainting bench. Now, I don't know if that's exactly, if that is at all what it was, but I got it in my head that I had to have this piece of furniture. And so every single time we rode past the furniture store, I told my parents I wanted it. And um, little town, you could drive past it multiple times in a day. Um, so yes, I definitely pestered, and I did get it for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I did, and do you know I kept it for probably twenty five years. All right, mm -hmm. I loved it. I don't know if I, I'm sure I was a pest, though. I don't have any of those stories, but my <laughs> my my older daughter, I will say. This was a kind of pestering. Um, she was really bad at, you know, when you would say as a parent, as we all had, all right, that's enough. Not, not another word. Mm. You might, you might as I mean, that, that just was, was enraging. She had to get, had to get another word. And, and so uh, finally she, she just wouldn't stop. And so I said, honey, you, why don't you go to your room and have some time to yourself? Let's calm down. And then, and then we'll, you know, when you come back, it'll be time for supper and we'll, we'll move on or whatever I said. It wasn't five minutes later. She was out of that room 
And, and she, gosh, I guess, I don't know if I said that. She was probably, I think she was five or six. And she said, Papa, I, I promise I'm not talking back, but I really need to explain this to you. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I knew at that point that she's going to be an attorney. <laughs> and, uh, and sure enough, that's what she's studying to be. So, oh, wow. <laughs> yep. You gave her lots of practice. Yeah, but she just had to explain it to me. Explain. And I'm and don't you know I'm grateful she did. Yes. <laughs> I was a youth minister um early in my ministry career. And when I was at a church uh here in Kentucky, we would take an annual trip to Kings Island, which is a you know, an amusement park like Six Flags or Kings Island or any of those kind of things. And and we would take a trip there. And it was in Cincinnati, so it was just, you know, an hour or something away. And so there was one particular teenager who loved to use the entire journey as a pestering experience. <laughs> <laughs> and so here's how it worked. He would show up at, to get on the bus because I, would, I, I tried to set expectations with the teenagers ahead of time. So, you know, show up on time. We're leaving by here. Don't be late. Uh, here's the rules for how we're going to behave while we're on the on the road while we're there, blah, blah, blah. Because, you know, get that out of the way, then let's go have fun. So one of the rules was we're not going to stop between Louisville and Cincinnati. It's just a little over an hour. We can do this. So he would show up with and, and make sure I saw it, a two-liter bottle of Mountain Dew. <laughs> <laughs> and he would proceed to open it as soon as he got on the bus and drink the whole thing. Not all at once, but, you know, he would drink the thing. And then he was really eager for us to pull over, <laughs> stop at a restroom. <laughs> so he would finish the Mountain Dew and then take the, the label off and make an armband out of it and put it up his arm. And then he would just come up and sit right behind the driver's seat or wherever I was. And it just, it was constant. Can we, can we stop now? Can you pull over now? Will you? But we didn't. <laughs> mm. oh, I was going to say, I don't even know this kid and I do not like him. I know. So, no, he, he's a great kid. Brilliant. Um, yeah. Okay. This, anyway. The truth is, this isn't a kid. This would have been a colleague named David Adams, correct? <laughs> it would be like something he yes. would do. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of which, never sit by him at a conference. Anyway, <laughs> that's another And don't give him Mountain Dew. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. <laughs> um hopefully we're hopefully we don't pester people now, right? Um never. Never. No. no. <laughs> uh we have an interesting text. Uh we're still in Luke. And uh Bert, would you help us get started with this one and I won't pester you about it. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm gonna start with uh talking about the late comedian George Carlin. George Carlin does a bit on religion, and his insights into prayer and God are hysterical and deeply profound and highly offensive. So, warning, if you do an internet search, his rant on religion is 100% not safe for work. But don't worry, I'm not going to use any words here that we can't use. But anyway, Carlin, an atheist, examines the way that we think about and talk about God. He says, notice, religion has, is, is, is um, convinced so many people that there is an invisible man living in the sky 
who watches everything you do, every minute of the day. And the invisible man has a special list of 10 things he does not want you to do. And if you do any of those 10 things, he has a special place full of fire and smoke and burning and torture and anguish where he will send you to live and suffer and choke and burn and scream and cry forever till the end of time. But he loves you. (laughs) He loves you. This invisible man in the sky loves you. And somehow he always needs more money. Y'all think about that last one. (laughs) Carlin's stand-up, I think, reflects so much of how the world has, has heard and seen and experienced the church's presentation of God. Philosophers and psychiatrists on the more atheistic end of the spectrum have argued that God is nothing more than a, a projected figment of ourselves or, or some projection of the shame-hurling, guilt-seeking, manipulative, and cruelly controlling parental or authoritarian figures from our past. But the truth is, we do project God images of ourselves, things we like, we don't like. We project our preferences. Um, We project our fears and our shames and the things we hate about ourselves on others, as well as into this vision or understanding of the divine. I wonder how, how so many of our relationships throughout our lives have involved some level of manipulation. You do this, you get that. You don't do this, and you won't get that. Now, of course, there's mild versions of that that are somewhat healthy, but then then there are extreme versions of that. And I wonder how that influences how we think of God and God's relationship to us. Do we have to perform or ask or act a certain way to receive a gift or love or just something else that we want from our parents? then how much more do we have to perform a certain way, act or ask to get something that we want or need from God? One thing that jumps out to us when Jesus tells this story in Luke's gospel about a poor widow and a crooked judge is persistence. The widow doesn't stop asking. The widow does not stop approaching. She just keeps coming, nagging, and yes, pestering until the judge finally gives her what she wants just to make her go away and leave him alone. Now, I do think that persistence in prayer is part of the lesson here. You know, to paraphrase Dora from Finding Nemo, we're just, just keep praying, just keep praying, just keep praying. But I don't think that Jesus is telling us that if we pray hard enough or long enough or annoyingly enough, that we'll eventually wear God down to get what we want, like we might have been able to do to a parent, a spouse, or friend. It might be, as Frederick Buechner says, that we wear ourselves down until we are able to receive what God wants to give, God's very self. But there's another aspect to this parable that Jesus is telling, I think, 
that I think we miss. Scholars remind us that Jesus often speaks with humor. And as Nikki pointed out in a recent podcast about earlier parables from Luke, Jesus often uses hyperbole. So it's very clear to everyone hearing Jesus speak this parable that the judge is not a good person. The judge is in no way a role model. He is certainly not someone to be held up as someone doing holy work. He's the antithesis of that, and we get that because first Jesus says he's crooked or he's unjust, but then he simply sets the judge against a widow. Oh, and we all know, and Jesus' hearers would have immediately known throughout the Jewish tradition from the Torah through all the holy writings and the prophets, at the very least, any person of God would always place an extra emphasis on the care of the widows and orphans. So immediately, Jesus' audience knows that this is a greatly exaggerated story to make a point. It's almost like Jesus is kind of laughing at the end of it. If even a nasty, selfish, corrupt judge will eventually do the right thing, then why do you think that God, who is merciful and compassionate and loving, would be so cruel as to make you just beg and beg and beg and plead over and over again? Now, this parable doesn't stand alone. It keeps building upon teaching after parable after example after parable after teaching after example about who we are, about what God wants of us, about who God is and who God isn't and about how our perception of the nature of God may say more about us than actually reflect God. I've often found that Jesus is a bit like George Carlin. He often uses exaggerated humor, but he always helps lighten us up a little bit about ourselves, but even challenge some of our deepest understandings of God. How do we understand God? Thank you, Bert. I really appreciate that because I'll have to admit, this is a hard one. We've all served in in ministry. Some of us are in different ministry roles now, but I'm sure we've all had that experience. Or maybe we've had it ourselves where, you know, we're, we're told that ask and it shall be given to you. You know, knock and the door will be open, seek and you will find. But we've all had, perhaps tragically, you know, some some prayers that just weren't answered, and and we've all had probably folks who've asked us, you know, why why am I still doing this? What's the point? And I don't think we hold up this persistent widow as some sort of just just be like her, keep at it, keep pestering, you'll finally wear God down. But there is something to her her diligence, her persistence that I think is a picture and and model of faith because if she didn't think the judge would 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 ever you know fully be on her side i think she would have given up long time ago i have to believe there's a lesson there for us i mean but it's hard cuz this is not this is not a just stick it out just keep doing it like blindly and and one day it'll happen kind of lesson i i don't think that's what this is about you know, and a few weeks ago, there was the parable that that is almost like this in so many ways of the 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 neighbor at midnight 
who goes asking mm-hmm. for some bread and wakes us and he just keeps banging and making noise until the neighbor finally gets up and gives him bread just to get him to shut up and go away so he can go back to sleep. And you get that same thing. But around all of this, it, all these constant parables, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan, this lost sheep, the lost coin, all these other parables that we always make about us. What are we what should we be doing based on this? And are we the prodigal? Are we the older brother? But there's this other idea here that we keep missing, I think, is that they all tell us something about the nature of God. And that whereas God is not a detached God, a, a God, a de- like the deist would have said, God just, some divine force, every, everything in motion, and is detached, uh, nor is God cruel and waiting for us to hit the right um, code word or, or you know, you didn't say please, you know, you didn't say a prayer this way before God will get us to do things. God is attentive to our needs, but I really like how Beekner says, uh, he tells a story about prayer that combines both of these, just like the, the annoying neighbor and the pestering widow. We keep beating the path to God's door, not, and we don't often find that we get what we need or that we want from God, but by just keep going back and keep going back and keep going back, we end up wearing ourselves down, maybe wearing our understandings and expectations of who God is until we find that we get God's very self. And, and I think mm. there's something to, to that. It is about prayer and it is about persistence, but it's not about prayer and persistence, like you said, to get something specific that we think we need from God or that we yeah. want from God or why didn't we get the healing but they did or here's the the these two hidden verses that people have forgotten about in a in an obscure dusty old dry book of information in the Old Testament from thousands of years ago two little verses if you pray this every day for 40 days then you've got the magic code to get mm-hmm. God what you want and, and and I don't think this is it is that stuff I think there's there's this thing about God. Jesus is addressing how we do prayer, why we do prayer. Do we just pray to get what we want? But then also in the context, Jesus is telling us a bigger thing about the nature of God and with all yeah. these parables in the larger context of all these things together. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me because I, I, I also think Jesus in telling this is giving us permission to be persistent and beg God to show up for deliverance when we really need it. And whether this is coincidence or, uh, you know, Jesus told it this way or Luke puts it together right before this is the, um, in Luke 17 is the, the days are coming, uh, when two people will be grinding weed and one will be taken up, you know, this kind of end of the world kind of stuff. And so the thought occurs to me, Oh, and, and, and the disciples, if you remember right at the end, they're like, what, Jesus, when is this going to happen? He doesn't answer, but maybe this is th- this comes right next. Maybe this is the answer, that, that when the world is crashing in, when there's evil and injustice, when you're at the end of your rope, and it's okay to beg and plead and be desperate for God to show up. Now, is that is that crystal clear in this text? No, that's an interpretation, but I I think that's a legitimate reading of this. I know y'all will tell me if it, if it's not, but I I think I think Jesus is saying it's it's okay to beg and plead and show up and say, God, be God. I need it. 
I think on the surface, it sounds like what the two of you are saying is almost opposed, but I don't think that it is. First, Bert, I wanted to say thank you so much for helping us remember that each one of these parables is not given to us in a vacuum, but rather that they are a part of a larger teaching of Jesus and that we have to understand each one in the context of that larger picture. I really appreciated you bringing that out for us. And I have always thought of prayer, well, I suppose I should say at least in my adult life, I have thought of prayer as something that is about relationship and something that changes me. And so when I come at it that way, I think that yes, we can be persistent and name what we want and what we want to be true, because if we weren't straightforward and honest, then that would not be a good relationship with God, right? Because when we come to God, we have to tell what is true in order for it to be an open and honest relationship. And I also know that when I take the time to really engage in prayer with God, that I am often changed and transformed by that experience. And maybe that's that wearing ourselves down to get to the base, to get to God in prayer. I don't know. I, I, I really like what both of you are saying. <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking about how we read this parable as privileged people, as people who do not deal with oppression and hunger and violence and how does how are those who are in those categories how do they read this parable would we read it differently if we were hungry wow because immediately if that's the case we become more like the unjust judge who who may not be necessarily we may not be crooked or or uncompassionate but do you deserve this, <laughs> right? Are, are, you, are you the undeserving, right? Did you do this yeah. the right way? Yeah. And um, wow. And I think that's an important thing because the, most of us who are listening are not in any way would be considered the widows. Um, yeah, yeah. I've been reading this. Um, mm. It's a great it's, book. Yes, Liturgies from Below. Um, and, and it's a collection of poems and liturgies and prayers, but they're written from the perspective of those who are oppressed or hungry or abused or, and, and it made, so when I was, when we were having this conversation, I was going, if I pray with, with the words that are in this book, I, I think about people I don't normally think about. I think about women in ways that, you know, I don't think about the fear that often women walk around with in our world or, or that people with different colored skin walk around with in our world or those who are hungry and, and poverty and, and praying <laughs> with, if I pray persistently for these people, it changes me because they are front of mind in a way that they would not have been without those persistent prayers. Yeah. And that's exactly in my 
understanding of what Beekner wrote. That's exactly what he's getting at. Prayer doesn't change. Yes. Prayer changes us. us. It changes us. our understanding, our perception, uh, everything about us and our understandings in, of God. Um, and it becomes much less self-focused. I will say the author of that, Claudio Carvalhes, was my doctoral supervisor. And um, he teaches in a pestering way like that. Really? Yeah. So like in what way? Like I, I would I would ask a question. He would say, if you were in my shoes, you know, for him, an immigrant. Yeah. Would you have asked me that question that way? This sounds contradictory, but but you can pester in love. Mm hmm. And and he would he would do that. It was sort of a a good teacher like Claudio, or like Jesus, does not let you off the hook so easily. Well, and let's yeah, thank you. And and let's remember when you said reading it from the perspective of of the oppressed, that the people Jesus was speaking to, there may have been some widows among them, but they were oppressed people by and large of a larger empire who could do the right things and say the right things. And if the empire was feeling cruel that day, you know, no, I would play favorites. And so, I mean, all of that oppression and power differential between the judge and the widow uh, is very much, I think, at the front of the minds. Okay. Obviously God isn't an unjust judge and we're not widows. So we're all in here some other way in between. Mm -hmm. Well, and the parable doesn't say the parable contrasts God from the judge. But the reason Jesus tells the story is because it's relatable in there being an unjust judge and somebody having to go there over and over. And of course, the widow would have to go over and over and over again to get what she needed. That's just real life. So that's why this, I think that's why the parable works because they mm -hmm. go, oh yeah, we get that. Some of them probably have had to return more than once to get justice for something in their life. Yeah, there's a there's a real. I've been watching a lot of Boston Legal reruns lately on a binge, and it was one of my favorite shows when it was out. Still is, uh, but there's this constant thing which, if you've ever done any work in a court or with lawyers or stuff, there's certain things that you know you just want to say. What do we need to do to make this go away? And what what does this person need? What do we need to give them that will satisfy them and end this? And I think that's very much a part of what you said, Nikki. That's what I yeah. came to mind. You know, just what do you have yeah. to do? Make it over. We know Let that's how the real world works. Right. Well, I, I've enjoyed this conversation. It's, <laughs> I feel like in some ways we're just getting wound up. And maybe in your groups, as you discuss this, you, you can continue this conversation and, and delve into the different ways we read these parables and they read us and, and how our prayers affect us and our faith and our growth, our relationship to God. I, I want to share a, um, a prayer from the book I mentioned, uh, Liturgies from Below, for 462 Acts of Worship. Praying with people at the ends of the world is the subtitle. And there's, there's, a, there's a prayer in here called GRRR, G-R-R-R, GRRR. So if I growl, that's what I'm, I'm reading. <laughs> and, and here's how it goes. Grr, make sounds of a growling stomach. Do you hear the sound of an empty stomach? Grr, 
do you recognize this sound? Grr. Do you know the feeling of hunger? Or are you always filled? Always have plenty and more, that such a sound and feeling is alien to you. Strange in your ears and a feeling that you've never experienced. Learn it, recognize it, and experience it. Perhaps there you'll hear God finally speak. Amen. Amen. May our prayers transform us in the way we live with each other. Thank you all for this good conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Subscribe to the Faith Element Podcast on iTunes or Google Play. Learn more about our Faith Element Bible Study curriculum at faithelement.net. Faith Element is a service of Faith Lab.